June 27, 1989. The first solo circumnavigation of the globe is completed by Joshua Slocum, finally proving that his last name is not a sex joke, but a clumsy portmanteau of solo and circumnavigation. Uh, welcome to The Revisionist. I'm Brian Flynn. I'm Zach Powers. And joining us is Revisionist favorite, uh, Shannon Camp, everyone. Hi, Revisionist favorite. I'm more like the typhoid Mary of this podcast because I just keep coming back. <laughs> oh, okay. I was going to say, have not washed your hands or... Oh, no. Okay. I don't think that applies to the arena of podcasting, at least. <laughs> That's true. That's true. We did um, send you a lot of malware, though. Every time I upload these files to you, I send you porn malware. You might already have so much that you don't notice. <laughs> Is there a difference between just porn malware and malware? I don't well, know. Or do you say porn malware and porn? I'm like, at this point, not really. <laughs> yeah, like porn malware. It's I like, think it had its heyday in the late 90s for like young kids. The mid to late 90s for kids who use their parents' computers and then pop-ups would would uh, show up while their parents tried to use them. <laughs> and they'd be like, Kevin? I oh, okay, because this was this the, the Home Alone family. Yeah. Home Alone. Yeah, that definitely later. happened fully into the mid-2000s. Not that I'm outing the only brother I have. <laughs> of course, of course. We'll, we'll, we'll bleep that if we need to. <laughs> he doesn't listen to this. <laughs> okay, no, I mean... I do, think, I do think it's true that Home Alone, like, five, if it were still following Kevin when he was 18 or 17, would be a lot of him looking at porn on the computer <laughs> when he got left at home. No, he would be, like, one of the hackers from Hackers and hack the planet Hack the planet, hack the planet. yeah. Or he would try, at least. Hack the planet sounds like the kind of thing a parent says in an old movie when they talk mm-hmm. about video games. They're like, are you going to blow bomb up the, the galaxy? Universe. Are you going to bomb the universe? Somebody yeah. has no frame of reference for how <laughs> technology works. But they're trying, at least. You know, give them that. Are they? They're, they're putting in a, some amount of effort. Maybe. They're not being actively harmful. <laughs> yeah, that's that's no, more. No, it depends on the tone with which that statement is delivered. <laughs> you guys are making way too many assumptions. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I, all I pick- the objectionable things Jack Nicholson does, it a fa- does as a father in The Shining, when he asks Danny that, it is one of the least objectionable moments. <laughs> but what a low bar to clear. Yeah, yeah that, that was... That was As sort of the face I was going for. <laughs> Zach's mind is never far from The Shining. Oh, of course. Uh, uh, anyways, folks, if you're new to this podcast, it's a comedy history podcast. Not always in that order, but sometimes in that order, uh, in which we discuss a person or event from history. Um, one person gives the true account of that person or event. In this case, that's going to be Shannon. And one person gives a crazy bananas batshit alternate version. In this case, that is going to be Brian. And at the end, we vote, and you theoretically vote, on what becomes the true history of this brilliant, blue, luminescent, uh, reflective, uh, shining, spinning, blue marble... Etc. going forward. See, that's exactly so we had... the harmful tone I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the sort of dismissiveness. I see that Sarcastic, now. Sarcastic, disinterested, I'm... above <laughs> it all. I've come up with adjectives for like 50 episodes now, and I'm, I just, I, my heart's not in it this time. Maybe next <laughs> time I'll get back. Well, you did say blue twice, and then like 
both bright and luminous, so... Well, synonyms are fine. <laughs> That's a new rule. Um, we uh, Last time we discussed Suya's 11, correct? And ultimately, the alternate history in which one of the astronauts was a cool dude named Koob, who I believe eventually became murderous. One out, delivered by our friend and yours, Nathan Lund. Uh, good episode. Go back and listen if you missed it for more details on the true story of Suya's Eleven. But this time we're switching gears. We're moving away from the space race. We're talking about medical history because it's timely. We thought, hey, maybe it won't be timely. And then a few days ago, it was like, <laughs> no, it's definitely yep. going to remain timely. And we're going to start things off uh, with uh, the story of Typhoid Mary, as alluded to earlier. Well, it doesn't get much more painfully topical than this. So I yeah. hope you didn't tune into a podcast for a fun distraction from your life because you are not going to get it, just so you know. This was a really interesting topic to research. I feel like this episode sort of goes with my episode on Evelyn Nesbitt, where it's like someone who was really famous in their time who was talked about in kind of a hashtag problematic way. <laughs> and now we can look on the situation with modern eyes and feel yeah. maybe different about it. Maybe the same. You'll have Typhoid to weigh Mary in Mary famously one of the first people who got ca- hashtag canceled. Um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she caught, you're you're saying it with that joking tone, but she really did kind of yeah. get canceled, like in a far more literal way than anyone who complains about being canceled today if my has ever experienced. Of story holds up, she got canceled with cause. <laughs> yes, well, a couple of times. Let's explore that. So, um, Typhoid Mary, aka Mary Malone was born in 1869 in what is now North Ireland. And get this, I didn't know this was a thing. She was probably born with typhoid because her mother Mm. had it while she was pregnant. And if you know anything about the story of Typhoid Mary, you know that she's probably one of the most famous asymptomatic carriers of all time. But I still had no idea that it was like this, um, this a part of her life. Like maybe that even has something to do with the reason why she was uh, asymptomatic. It like grew inside her organs as she developed as a fetus, which is really interesting to think about. Um, And for those of you who don't know what typhoid is, because it's not really so much a thing anymore, um, it's a intense fever and a lot of digestive pains, cramps, and really bad diarrhea. I'll try to keep the details on people's situations as light as possible. Uh, But suffice to say, at the time, people didn't really understand um, how it was transmitted. Uh, It look it presented in these symptoms a lot like food poisoning so a lot of people just assumed that it could only be transferred in like filthy environments unclean cooking situations Mm -hmm. but that's actually not the case because someone like mary who was an asymptomatic carrier or maybe was just a little bit sick could pass it on to someone else who might get intensely sick and die of it Again, what is this making you think of? Yeah, <laughs> we, again, comedy podcast. We did it. Great topic selection, me. Um, oh. If you're 
Oh, I was going to say, if you're a student of history at all, you'll know that when someone is born into a poor family or an obscure one, we generally know very little about their early life. And that's definitely the case for Mary. Her story after uh, birth pretty much picks up at age 15 when she moves to the United States. Um, She moves in with her aunt and uncle and works as a maid for a little bit of time, but quickly becomes a cook for wealthy families, which is really like her niche. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from 1900 to 1907, she worked as a cook for eight different families. And it's going to sound unbelievable when I describe it, but she really did just pretty much go from family to family, sometimes slightly overlapping employment situations, but usually not. And like, once people started getting sick in the house where she worked, she would just bounce and leave no forwarding address. And even as I researched her today, it's not entirely clear why. And I know that sounds like a stupid thing for me to say, but like, we don't really know what was going through her head as she made these choices. Mm-hmm. I think it was... People during this time did not understand the concept of an asymptomatic carrier, even doctors. So my, someone like her could have never known. My understanding was she listened to a lot of Chapo and wanted to poison as many rich people as possible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that was unfortunately only part of what was going on because often the people to catch most sick and die were the servants that she lived in servants' quarters with in these rich families' households. Well, to be fair, Chapo doesn't really care about the, Yeah, I'm more no into punishing the rich than saving the the destitute so, in many ways. Very on brand. Um, and I mean, that's of, also going to be, sorry. Oh, see, seven of these eight families contracted typhoid and the only family that was spared was spared because they kept their servants in a separate house on the grounds. Oh, that's, that's a whole other set of problems. That's not medical related. So this kind of gives you a sense of the world that Mary is working in. I was reading a really beautiful novel this week, and characters who are involved in a Ponzi scheme, like working for this guy who's running a Ponzi scheme, in deposition, talk about how you can know and not know something at the same time. Like, they claim they didn't know, but on some level they did know, but they were also so Mm -hmm. deep in denial that they truly didn't know. And that line was resonating in my head so much as I researched Mary. I don't think she was a stupid woman. I think on some level she must have known that she was the commonality between all these households that were falling grievously, grievously ill, or else she wouldn't have, like, been suddenly quitting her jobs and vanishing, you know, leaving no forwarding information. But on the other hand, I think she really was in this deep denial that she could be the cause because she thought of it as very a very insulting idea that she might be quote-unquote dirty, which is what typhoid was very much associated with at this time. Mm-hmm. So it's just such an interesting tangled web. And I mean, this is around, I believe this is around the time when I mean, germ theory had been, like, accepted scientifically after way too long. But even still, it was, like, that in and of itself was still settling in with the public. Yeah. And so that combined with the idea of, like, oh, you could be carrying this without showing any signs of it. um, And it's not, like, a moral failing that you have a disease 
was all like of things not just probably Mary, but like society as a whole was processing. Yeah, and of course, we don't have time to get into it all, but there's a lot of class and um, immigration issues bound up in all this. Like, I'm sure that she was very insulted by the idea of being seen as a quote-unquote dirty Irish immigrant, and that adds a whole nother layer of, you know, cultural context. Mm -hmm. But regardless of why she did it, she did keep doing it. And I think we will see as her story continues on, that her personality may have been a not insignificant factor. So um, let me see where we left off. Yes, the f- servants uh, that lived separately from the family. That was one of the later families she worked for. Um, because all the servants contracted it, doctors came to examine the situation and they incorrectly blamed the family laundress for the outbreak. Because this was a time when a woman would be employed just doing the laundry. And um, this poor woman, who probably had nothing to do with it and was actually very sick, uh, actually was probably not the typhoid Mary uh, of that situation <laughs> at all. Um, and it was kind of like... Everywhere she went that this happened, it would be very noticeable and attract a certain amount of public attention, even though people had no idea what the commonality was, because she was working for these very wealthy families. So in many of these communities, it would be like the first time typhoid had been seen in that community in a long, long, long time Mm. or ever. Um, so it was very surprising. A lot of these communities would test water samples and like scrape the insides of pipes and check everything they could and they just wouldn't find typhoid anywhere. So it was like this bizarre medical mystery, which is really interesting to think about. One of the families that she worked for, their only daughter died of the disease. And after that, they became understandably very motivated to understand what the cause was. So they actually hired a public investigator named George Soper to go through all these cases of typhoid suddenly breaking out in wealthy communities. And he was able to find commonalities in the outbreaks, specifically a female Irish cook. And there was an active typhoid outbreak um, in a household on Park Avenue. And that made the headlines for being really unusual. So he Mm -hmm. went to that household and questioned them and was able to discover Mary. And he actually went to the kitchen of the household and confronted her. And she was super pissed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She threatened Soper with a carving fork. Uh, she basically refused to even listen to the possibility or talk with him. Soper was, by all accounts, like a pretty calm, level-headed dude. He's like, we just want to take samples, um, which she refused to do. Um, and as a way of trying to make something happen, he wrote into various medical journals about the case, and it did attract some media attention at that point, but still nothing happened. So, uh, Soper eventually alerted the authorities. Hmm. And my understanding was, I mean, and obviously not wanting to get into too much detail, but The sample collection was, let's call it invasive. Yeah, well, it would be stool and urine samples. So that's definitely, again, digs into the other, ties back to the other factors that we were discussing earlier. Right, yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, she just 
out and out refused. Um, but again, not totally un understandably. Right. Um, I don't know that she needed to threaten him with a large fork, but no. he was fine. No actual <laughs> bodily harm came to him. He was a big boy. <laughs> Um, Sorry, I just pictured you, like, giving her notes after that. <laughs> well, as someone who has worked, uh, you know, as a domestic worker in a variety of households, uh, I would have some notes for her. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so six police officers were sent over to bring her in to basically force her to give samples and she resisted arrest. They specifically brought a police woman as one of the six who, to subdue her, had to sit on her. And oh. Mary was a very large woman. So that also may kind of play into this whole mental picture of the scene. Yeah. Um. At that point, she was taken to a hospital where she was basically restrained and then when she had to go to the bathroom they made her give stool and urine samples like she wasn't allowed to go to the bathroom alone and uh she was also questioned very intensely like basically interrogated by police officers mm -hmm. and in that interview situation she admitted that she basically never washed her hands but this was just a very common thing at the time. It doesn't make it any mm -hmm. less disgusting. And it's horrifying to think about all the people who got sick and died, you know, including very, very poor, vulnerable people. Right. Um, in some ways because of her, but a part of me almost hesitates to say because of her, because I'm coming from such a modern understanding of medicine that these people truly did not have. Yeah. And I mean... Yeah, there's so many things that go along with it. There's even, um, like, listening to an episode of another podcast that was discussing the history of hand washing itself. That there was like struggles within medicine, yeah, to like establish that as a regular practice. It also I read that uh, doctors are are like not even doctors, more like health experts are hoping that the whole pandemic will actually make the whole full 20-second hand-washing more of a thing, even among doctors, where apparently the practice has not fully 100% taken hold. As someone who has worked in kitchens for uh, over 15 years, um, yeah, it should happen more often in kitchens, too. But yeah, that's, that's a so, whole other... <laughs> enjoy that thought, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> but it's all true. Anyway, she was sentenced to quarantine on North Brother Island, which is off the coast of New York, where she's living. She really wanted to keep working as a cook. She was very insistent. And that's kind of what part of the catalyst behind this whole quarantine idea was. Although it wasn't – forced quarantine wasn't as unheard of at the time as it is now, where we would be like, what? But it was still super unusual for the most part. It wasn't like a massive system or anything. This was still like – an anomaly that definitely caught the public eye. Mm -hmm. um, Soper came to her and basically said, I want to write a book about this whole situation and I'll split the royalties with you. But she was so upset by the idea because she didn't want to be known in the mainstream as, you know, typhoid Mary. She didn't want to be known as a spreader of disease that had killed people. Again, understandably, but yeah, totally. unfortunately for Mary, she was running out of options in terms of how to make money because 
you know, she hadn't had access to an education. She had come from a different country without her immediate family members. She didn't really have a way of supporting herself besides working as a domestic laborer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, so she understandably hated the nickname Typhoid Mary, which had kind of caught fire in the press after... Um, these medical so the medical journals would publish like legitimate papers on the case and then other publications would take a more tabloid view of the medical journals publication so that's basically how the story got out it wasn't really like soper was running to the tabloids for what it's worth although right. he did want to profit off her story by writing the book and again splitting the profits with her um so she had to stay on the island she suffered what research called a nervous breakdown, but I don't know how useful that term is in the modern setting. I would say, like, she suffered from anxiety, massive anxiety attacks, panic attacks would probably be a better way of putting it. Suffice to say, her mental health deteriorated and she really suffered, um, especially at the beginning of this first quarantine. And she received really inconsistent medical treatment. Like, sometimes it would be all hands on deck, testing her and whatnot. But she was having problems with one of her eyes unrelated to typhoid, and it took a really long time for her to be able to see an eye doctor, even though it was, like, a very bad situation. So that's very frustrating. I definitely wish that the healthcare professionals that she was in the hands of had given her better treatment because she just really didn't understand what was going on. She still, throughout all of this, did not believe that she was a carrier. She had samples tested by, like, a private firm that claimed to be negative. I don't think that could possibly be true based on the number of people that died while she was serving them uh, or living with them. But for what it's worth, she genuinely believed that she did not have typhoid. She thought this was all ridiculous. Mm -hmm. After three years, she was released on the condition that she would find another job. She couldn't be a cook anymore. She had to sign an affidavit saying that she wouldn't be a cook anymore. So she worked as a laundress for a couple of years, but as a point of comparison, the average wage for a laundress was $20 a a month, whereas the average wage for a cook was $50 a month. So it was a very, very, very significant pay difference. Mm -hmm. And um, after two years working as a laundress, she got an injury on her arm that became infected and her entire arm, um, it became difficult to move it. So she had to not work at all for six months. And after that, she just really needed money. And sadly, heartbreakingly, because it would cause more outbreaks and more deaths, she went back to work as a cook under a variety of assumed names. Mm, So this is is sort of the most morally complex point in our story. Because she really, I believe, felt that she didn't have another way of surviving financially in New York. But on the other hand, and it's equally as important, at this point, she knew what she was doing. Like, she's using fake names, and she obviously is aware of some of the harm that she's wreaking on innocent people. So it's just a terrible, terrible situation. And I do find fault with her here, despite despite obviously wishing that her circumstances had been different. Right, totally. Because, like, obviously before, you know, we we talked about sort of the, the level of just, like, general ignorance about, like, hygiene and just disease and in society but there's enough information 
available to her at this point where it's like, mm, I don't know. Yeah, I I mean, despite the fact that she didn't have um, access to the education she deserved and despite the fact that there was not very much medical understanding about her being an asymptomatic carrier at all, I do think the medical professionals that she was in the care of on North Brother Island and the authorities involved there who made her sign that affidavit really did try to explain their findings to her as clearly and precisely as they could. And I don't see how she could have totally misunderstood at that point. Well, if she's getting theoretically private samples tested, she clearly understands what is going on. Yeah. But her private tests made her believe that she did not have it because they tested negative. Yeah. But even you said you have a difficult time believing that. No, I agree with that. I think those tests must have been faulty. I believe that she saw, I believe that she was given negative results. I believe also that probably those people were just trying to make a buck. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's just layers of corruption upon corruption. Because, again, the doctors that she was in the care of were not necessarily taking amazing care of her. Mm-hmm. Um, so she caused more outbreaks. She was followed by Soper, obviously, because even though she's using fake names, like there's these super obvious typhoid outbreaks breaking out where they're never happening before. She can't go to an agency that would place her in these private wealthy households. So she's working at, you know, kitchens, at spas, at hotels, at these places uh, where many, many people come and go. And the, it's just, you know, causing these disastrous outbreaks. So um, eventually she gets a job working at a hospital, a women's hospital, and causes an outbreak in which two women die and many more are terribly sickened. And this is where Sober Soper is able to positively identify her, like, once and for all. She had already fled the hospital job at that point, but the doctors and nurses on staff were able to give him, like, very detailed, precise descriptions of her. And they had samples of her handwriting in the hospital records that they could compare to samples of her writing they had from her arrest. So at this point, they pretty much knew what the deal was. They managed to track her down in Long Island when she went to bring food to a friend. You cannot make this stuff up. And um, she was returned to North Brother Island in 1915. So that's five years after she was released from her first quarantine. And she would never uh, leave quarantine again. She remained there for the last 23 years of her life. She had a private one-story cottage on the island. And starting in 1918, she was allowed to take off-island trips with staff. Obviously, they just had to make sure that she was doing safe practices. Mm-hmm. Um, she worked as a laboratory technician for a female doctor who was, like, doing research on the island. And by all accounts, was treated well and fairly by that doctor. She worked, like, cleaning laboratory equipment and stuff. Oh, um, so there was, like, actual medical research happening Elsewhere on the island. Yes. It wasn't, I had always pictured it as almost like a like a deserted island situation. Yeah, and even like internships and stuff were happening. So, oh, okay. Um, yeah, it was also a place of study. Um, I don't think it's like one of the worst places you'll hear about. Obviously, we've all heard of medical facilities from this time where the patients were like horribly abused and mistreated. That was not the impression I got from my research. I do think they could have treated her better, but unfortunately, this was a time when the standard of care was just beneath what we would expect today. 
Um, so it wasn't all bad, but unfortunately her life did have a sad end. Um, she had a stroke six years before her death that left her paralyzed on one side of her body. And then she died of a pneumonia six years after that. Um, authorities claimed that an autopsy after her death showed that there was still typhoid bacteria in her gallbladder. But Soper, who, despite the fact that he was the one to track her down and tell her story, in some ways advocated for her, um, mm -hmm. said that there was no autopsy ever after her death. There was no autopsy. So mm. um, modern researchers believe that the authorities said there was an autopsy and they discovered typhoid in her organs because public opinion on forced quarantines had shifted so much in the 23 years that she had been in this forced isolation. And people went from having like a very punishing view of her where it was like this awful woman needs to be locked up to perhaps having a more sympathetic view of her situation, how there were factors outside of her control um, that led to what happening, um, what happened mm -hmm. happening. Pardon me. So, yeah, I have very complicated feelings on her, far more so than someone like Evelyn Nesbitt, who was very mocked at the time, but I now see as, like, an out-and-out 100% out victim of her situation mm -hmm. in a way that um, Mary Malone is not, which I think is what makes her such an interesting figure in our coronavirus era when we're all weighing our personal responsibilities to each other while at the same time struggling through enormous economic hardship. When hopefully all of us are weighing our responsibilities yeah, to each other. Yeah, yeah. No, I just meant there's like, yeah. uh, it feels like we're all trying to calculate those same scales in our daily mm -hmm. lives. Yeah. And I mean, to think of like 23 years isolated on an island versus not being able to go to Chili's is yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the to state her credit, she stormed zero capitals with an automatic weapon. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what, what, what would have happened if they had released her like three years into that second quarantine instead of keeping her for 23 years. I want well, to believe that maybe she could have understood and like gotten a different job that wasn't cooking for people or being in close proximity with them. Mm -hmm. But a bigger part of me feels that like because of her personality, she was just going to do what she was going to do. She was so stubborn. Yeah. Her pattern of behavior does not bore out the idea that she would have been exactly, yeah. yeah. Responsible. So I, I can't really say like, oh, I I wish she had been unleashed on the unsuspecting, innocent public, especially since so many of her I don't want to say her victims, but so many of the typhoid's victims were uh also very poor people. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay, so that is the true government-sanctioned account, um, and that leaves Brian to give uh, his version of events, which Rashomon um, style, um, which is convenient because a lot of what uh, I uncovered uh, in my research um, was it. It does involve like sort of a lot of the years that get skipped over in the records. Um, so, yep, Mary Malone was born uh, Northern Ireland. Her family soon moved down to uh, the South County Cork, to be specific. Um, had a She had, like, a fairly normal Irish childhood um, at the time. Uh, based, on, based on my family's own accounts, they probably shared one misshapen wool sweater. Um, 
and drank tears and hated the English. Um, when you say shared, do you mean it was passed around or they all, all wore at it once. at the same time? Yeah, no, all at once. Okay. It was very large, to be fair. So right. they, they should have just used the same amount of wool to make multiple sweaters, but I guess they didn't mm, think... Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't planning. the style at the time. Yeah. That's not the Catholic way, Zachary. You're a no, godless of course. heathen. Of course. What, are you a Protestant? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so she also learned to play the uh, Irish tin whistle with her family to pass the time. Uh, her other hobby was just digging in dirt. Um Ireland. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you'll find a potato. Maybe you won't. <laughs> maybe. Around this time, probably not, because the no. fucking English. Not looking good. I mean, we've been playing a lot of Stardew Valley, so that sounds pretty, <laughs> pretty typical for our... <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's our life. Um, so and a lot of our villagers have been getting deathly ill. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> they keep eating peach ice cream. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's weird. It's so not even it's programmed into the game. <laughs> it keeps happening. <laughs> it is weird that there are games like that that have, like, death as a feature. Like, just, I'm just remembering my Tamagotchi. I mean, Sorry, most that's... games have death as a feature. But, it's like, a, like the kid... those sorts of games. <laughs> Mario has death as a feature. Well, okay, but you don't encounter death in Mario in the same way. Um, <laughs> so uh, she became friends with uh, other village children, specifically uh, Dolores McHenry, Sean O'Rourke, and uh, Kevin O'Floyne. Um, around age 11... Um, the four of them got together and formed the Lower Cork Tin Whistle Show Band and Review. Um, and they gained, like, a modicum of fame around the area for their, you know, wholesome music about misery uh, and the English. That and is just, the Irish way. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, and they uh, they even, they traveled to Dublin for the annual Music and Commiseration Festival. Um in between, uh, in between shows, uh, Mary would de-stress by wandering undeveloped portions of Dublin, and uh, she unwound by digging in the earth. And that's when she uncovered uh, an old um, Viking tablet that uh, was, sure. I wrote encrusted with runes, but that doesn't seem right. Um <laughs> And uh, With Mary dirt like dirt encrusted runes carved into it. I see yes. like the image you're going for. That that's that's much more that's much more accurate than what I, I wrote. Have to confess, <laughs> all your references. Well, the fact that she was a larger woman and the fact that she was so her band was like wholesome in a way, but also the references to misery. I truly thought this was going to be a misery thing. <laughs> oh, I did not even think of that. Um, sh- can I throw that in? No, it's too late, Brian. Um, so Just she uh, somebody in the third act, real quick. <laughs> James Con shows up. She hits him with a sledgehammer. James Con um, as George Soper. <laughs> man, between that and The Shining, we're really hitting the Stephen King. Um, no, that's a normal thing for this household. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it's all true. the classic Stephen King's isolated in the Colorado mountains with a psychopath. Uh, <laughs> See if we can get Dreamcatcher in here. Yeah. At some point. Um, So uh, Mary used sort of her innate Irish gift for language to translate the runes. 
Um, and uh, in doing so, she unlocked some buried secrets that had lain dormant for almost a millennium. Uh, specifically, the secret of heavy metal. Um, and she realized that that expressed... The music, a, not the material, I assume. Yes, not like lead, but like the music style. Um, well, which she's playing I a clearly tin whistle, evinced. so it works on multiple levels. Exactly. <laughs> nice. Um, and she found that heavy metal, um, expressed a lot of what the lower cork tin whistle show band and review was trying to get across in their music. Um, you know, alienation, anger, misery, rebellion, all that. Um, and it also, uh, contained instructions for teaching yourself how to play bass, which was handy. Um, and so she did that. She taught Dolores how to play guitar, taught Sean the drums and Kevin, uh, kept bringing the heat on the tin whistle, but you know they needed a name, and the name needed to fit the new genre of music. Um, they were looking at like uh, Mutton Chops, uh, Cromwell's Corpse, uh, but finally they settled on a winner, which was Typhoid. Uh, and if if this alternate history seems a little thin, it's because I spent some time trying to draw a Typhoid logo. So Typhoid needed a gimmick, like every band, like how. <laughs> The Beatles are, you know, George and Ringo and then two shitty people. Um, uh, the Beatles gimmick at the time was they were all super cute, right? Yeah, no, they were all cute. Yeah, that was that was their first gimmick. But that wore off surprisingly quickly, uh, just got to say. But uh, the Typhoid decided they would be the band that never washed their hands. And like we said, hygiene in general was bad. Um, and... People only wash their hands occasionally or even by accident. So it wasn't like super uncommon, but it's still connected with people. They accidentally um, fell into Yeah. Like into a, a sink full of and, soap yeah. and water. <laughs> yeah. They were at the car wash and some of it got on their their hands, which they usually kept gloved at all times. I just you wanted know, to splash some refreshing soap water in my face. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you're taking a stroll. You accidentally walk through the entire car wash. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You absentmindedly sing happy birthday. And when you look up, what? My hands have been in soap and water this whole time. <laughs> I'll better sing happy birthday again. Maybe it'll go away. Um, so they played their first gig at Bobby O'Shaughnessy's pub, famous for their brown bread. Um, and Why did uh, you Mar- put the emphasis on brown? Because <laughs> it's unique. I don't know. Um, it is very warm in here. Um, they uh, opened for uh, the Sligo Ro- Rovers and their Songs of Suffering show. Uh, and the crowd really wasn't ready uh, for typhoid. Um, they did say their hands were like comfortably filthy, but didn't like their music. So the band decided that the crowd in London might you know, be better for them. They're a little more cosmopolitan. And they had... And they they're played... very dirty. No yes. one litters more than the English. Oh, you my gosh. take that to the freaking bank. <laughs> and around that time, London, forget about it. You could smell it a mile, many miles away. Yeah, does the word houndstitch mean anything to you? <laughs> no more questions. Uh, wait till we get to our episode on Jon Snow. We'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> 
Um, Asterisk, not the Game of Thrones guy. Yes. Asterisk, but also sort of the Game of Thrones guy, because I'm sure he'll be mentioned throughout. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure he'll be relevant in the end. I don't know who's going to take the alternate on that one, but there is a 75% (laughs) chance. Oh, yeah. I am. <laughs> I almost didn't pick it because I'm like, this is going to be the most obvious alternate Our history. Our guest, George R.R. R. Martin, will be doing the alternate history. <laughs> no, we need we need to get the episode out on time. And we we also, can't Yeah, end. we need somebody who will write one. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, Wait, our episode's been two... delayed six years because he's been working on his alternate history. You can get the two really problematic guys who made Game of Thrones for HBO. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're good. Uh, we don't need to. <laughs> we don't need to do that. Um, so they, um, sorry, they had their like legendary, like breakthrough show, um, at a Henry Mason's tavern where they were paid in just piping hot ale, um, in the traditional English manner. And, but they eventually decided that they wanted to head to the U S to really kick it up a notch. So this is around when Mary was 15, um, and they land in New York and they're an immediate sensation. They play like 20 shows in like 14 days. Uh, and a headline in the New York Herald reads typhoid fever strikes city. Um, and so, uh, of course the authorities didn't like the music. It was too loud. They preferred their sort of familiar Sousa marches or whatever. Um, and they decided, you know, to kind of suppress it. And, by singling out Mary, they thought they could quash uh, heavy metal. And they did have a tool. They had the growing evidence that she did indeed carry the typhoid bacteria without knowing it. Um, how they got this evidence, I did not write down. Um, I realize now. Just say deep throat. It was deep, deep throat. throat. It was deep throat. Um, sorry, Jed and I are watching the X-Files, and so I'm... Deep Throat is a very different character to me. Um, so despite the fact that there were dozens of other documented asymptomatic, asymptomatic carriers of typhoid, Mary was the only one who was actually forcibly quarantined. Um, the band Typhoid tried to carry on. Um, they toured as Typhoid with Rome for a while, uh, but couldn't really recapture the magic. Um, Mary in quarantine, started working on solo material. Uh, she released an album under the name Brother Island, which was kind of like Yacht Rock-y. Um, Pitch, Pitchfork gave it a 4.5. Um, Pitchfork was Jonathan Pitchfork, <laughs> a Pitchfork salesman and freelance music critic. <laughs> Brian's um, being heckled on the other end. No, that was genuine laughter. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> Thank you. Um... The cats did not care for it. Um, So Mary eventually was released and uh, despite being aware of the risks, as we discussed, uh, made the conscious choice to expose others to typhoid uh, or somewhat conscious. Um, And because of this, her band and former fans distanced themselves from her. uh, And she was a bit... Yeah. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I did not even... Considered that. <laughs> um, and she was eventually returned to Brother Island where she spent the rest of her life in quarantine. But um, despite the fact that they didn't approve of her actions, her bandmates would sometimes sail to Brother Island under the cover of night to sit under her window 
and play to her. Uh, and that's the actual history of Typhoid Mary. Oh, I liked it. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I ended it in a sweet note. <laughs> it ended it on such a like lovely yet melancholy image that really that really resonated for me. Can I tell you? That's that's the Irish in me coming out. That's the full, um, the full Irish. Uh, yeah. So before we get to the final judgment, we generally do some plugs just now. Mm-hmm. Ryan, I don't know if you got anything going on. Um, well, generally, uh, of course, we always say if you want to write us a letter, um, you can do that at revisionistpodcast.com. Just go to the contact page. Uh, you can also reach us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Uh, just search Revisionist Podcast. Uh, there have been letters we've been sitting on meaning to record like a mailbag episode, and we just haven't. I'm sorry we have not gotten back to those. Um, it probably does not matter um, to, to the people in question, but it is really appreciated. Um, and we also ask that if you have time, uh, you review the show on your podcast app of choice. Uh, written reviews are especially helpful. Um, and as for me, we've been plugging, making sure you're registered to vote um, for one thing. Um, I'll also keep plugging bail funds, um, even though a lot of them have gotten a lot of money to, for bailing out protesters. Um, a lot of them have existed before the protests and have been trying to combat the inequities created by cash bail. Um, and they'll still need support until cash bail is abolished. So, you know, keep looking out, keep seeing if ones in your area exist and need support. You can also check out the social media or official website uh, for your favorite bail fund. And Mm -hmm. a lot of them will just straight up tell you other organizations that they would like to point you towards to donate to if they have received like more donations uh, than they need in that moment. So a lot of times they can point you right where you need to go. Totally. Um, Yet, uh, did either of you want to mention anything in particular? Yeah, I'll plug my podcast, which uh, is currently on hiatus, but you can listen to all the scripted episodes of Little Women, a modern audio drama, which is a, as you probably suspected from the title, uh, modern version of Little Women that I wrote and co-produced and acted in. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, We've had a modest degree of success. I'm really proud of it. So we're taking a little break, and then we'll be back soon with more nonfiction educational bonus episodes and it's a really great show and i also i mean i especially like the bonus episodes too thank you yeah i mean hey if you didn't get enough of me ranting about you about historical topics on this show uh go ahead and check out my bonus episodes on the little women podcast nice zach uh i uh have uh foolishly in quarantine revived a podcast I did 10 years ago with my friends Russell Carlson and Chris Boroff. Um, It's kind of a game show film review podcast where we each submit a movie on a theme and the winner of each round picks the next theme. We have a certain number of points, etc., etc. It is called The Movie Trap. I believe it is available wherever I 
uh, it'll be available by the time I think today it's going to be available on uh, various oh, podcasting shit. apps. It's also on YouTube. There's a video version that uh, Chris dutifully edited together, uh, which you could find, I believe, on YouTube or at least the first episode so far. Um, and yeah, so you could hear more of me there. Probably at some point, uh, I I have to imagine Brian might uh, be a guest. He was a guest on the old version at one point, so I don't see why he wouldn't be a guest yeah. on this new version at some point. Revisionist colon origins. <laughs> the, the real origins are the first world history podcast from 10-ish years ago, and we've released some of those old episodes on this feed. Yes. Um, I still have the rest the on my external hour, hard drive. I think I said, called it something else. Yeah, first world history, which is... I don't know if we can claim first world privilege anymore. We'll have to settle for white privilege. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is still not settling all that. It's yeah. Ingrained. <sighs> Hence the joke. Yeah. No, no, sorry. I am just depressed. Anyway. <laughs> it's okay. I didn't want people to think I was like actually bragging about white privilege, but no, you responded no, no, to me totally. so sincerely. <laughs> sorry. It just. It's okay. Uh, listeners, it's what all of us spend so much of our time thinking about right now. Which is good. Yes. Yes. Um, I'm all for it. But that brings us to the judgment phase. Yeah. Um, so uh, the true story of uh, Mary Malone, Typhoid Mary, obviously a very gray story with a lot of Factors to consider, like unfair aspects of her life and also seemingly willfully ignoring the danger and death that she could cause other people. Um, it's a complicated, strange and timely story. Um, but ultimately, I feel like I want to go with the alternate one where they have fun playing in a band and then also some death happens. But then there is a nice ending where they serenade her at the end. Absolutely the right call. So I'm going to go with that one. Well, uh, listeners, voting is now open uh, for Patreon support supporters. And keep an eye out on the Instagram story for uh, voting uh, next Wednesday. As I look at a watch, I don't have. Um, like I said, very warm. Uh, but Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Always happy to be back. Thanks so much. Of course. Zach, thank you as always. Uh, of course. For everyone here at The Revisionists, I'm Brian Flynn. I'm Zach Powers. Have a good time. Good time.